Imagine a struggling family business who comes up with a new product, a brushless shaving cream, in the hopes it'll turn things around. Still, they're on the verge of failure. Then they come up with a new marketing gimmick that makes them profitable and gives millions of drivers something to read. Today I have the tale of Burma Shave on the 139th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am your host and storyteller, Jeff Kelly. On today's show, I can promise you no one gets murdered. You see, the last two shows have been about murder. The last show in particular was a bit disturbing. It was about an elderly lady who gets viciously killed. And today, I almost did another story about murder, but then I thought, no, I want to do something fun. And then I remembered Nancy Fry from the History Files, What's in a Name, and a number of other podcasts suggested doing a story of the Burma Shave signs. Trust me, if you don't know Burma Shave, it's a lot more of an interesting story than you might imagine. Yet even with that, I knew the podcast was going to be a little short. Then I remembered a listener named Drew from Maine suggested doing the story of Neko, the New England Confectionery Company. I get these suggestions every once in a while, story ideas that I just can't figure out how to make an episode out of. But then I thought it might just work to fill up today's show, so we'll give it a try. And as it turned out, the more I got into it, the more I found it an interesting story. And quickly before I start, a listener named Russell sent me a couple of nice emails this week. He's a new listener, and we had a nice conversation about why it was customary to wear hats before 1960. He also gave me a few show ideas, so thanks very much, Russell. So here in Chicagoland, we have yet to have a significant snowfall, which is not a bad thing. Don't you hate shoveling snow? Though I discovered through Twitter that a young lady from a CD basement bar in Minnesota loves both raking leaves and shoveling snow. Weird, right? Anyway, how about a story of reading material along America's highways? This podcast is part of the Psycon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash Psycon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. Within this veil of toil and sin. Your head grows bald, but not your chin. You need Burma shave. Why Burma shave? Demonstration. Put other leathers on a blotter, then circle with new Burma shave. Minutes later, Burma shave soaks rings around them all to give you a smooth, clean shave. Try new Burma shave. In 1903, Horatio Nelson Jackson, a minister's son with a medical degree, who became a successful businessman, took an improbable journey across the USA in an automobile. He traveled from San Francisco to New York, driving a primitive car manufactured by the Winton Motor Carriage Company that he bought for $3,000. 
To make this journey, he had to use any drivable surface available. That's dirt roads, cow paths, railroad beds, anything. While Jackson's trip was truly amazing, if automobiles would be used to take people from ocean to ocean, the United States would need better roads. By 1910, road construction had begun. In 1914, the American Association of State Highway Officials was formed to establish roadway standards. They created a plan for a system of marking and numbering of interstate highways. In May of 1918, Wisconsin became the first state to number their highways. In 1922, the New England states got together to establish six state New England interstate routes. Route 66 began construction in 1926, connecting Chicago, Illinois to Santa Monica, California, running through Missouri, Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona. The journey from one end to the other was 2,448 miles. Route 66 is the most famous of America's highways, but there were many more. They were long roads that were not too different from the roads we travel across country today, except for one big difference. There were no billboards or advertisements for you to read as you drove by at a top speed of 35 miles an hour. US 65 is a north-south United States highway in the southern and midwestern United States. In 1926 or 27, a series of road signs appeared on Route 65 near Lakeville, Minnesota. These signs were usually a set of six in a row, spaced about 100 yards apart. When read, they would say something like, Goodbye, shaving brush. Half a pound for a half a dollar. Very fine for the skin. Druggist have it. Cheer up, face. The war is over. Another set of signs in the same area read, Shave the modern way. No brush, no lather, no rubbin'. Big tube, 35 cent drug stores. And each one ended with the word Burma Shave. While these early signs didn't rhyme and weren't too catchy, that would soon change. These signs were the start of a unique marketing campaign by the Burma Vita Company of Minneapolis. You see, this was back in the day when men, and well, maybe women, shaved hair by using a brush to apply shaving cream. Burma Vita founder Clinton O'Dell was the first in America to introduce a new brushless shaving cream. But the story really starts with his father, attorney Robert Ransom O'Dell. Legend goes that he had come across a liniment recipe from an old sea captain. It was said to have healed burns quickly and without scars or blisters. So with his son's help, the two began marketing this wonder liniment. They called the company Burma Vita. Burma because one of the essential oils came from Malay Peninsula and Burma, and the word Vita is Latin for life and vigor. So the meaning of the name was life from Burma. But things didn't go well. Clinton's son Leonard, who would eventually run the company, said of those early days, Well, we sure starved to death on that problem for a couple of years. With liniment, you have to catch a customer who isn't feeling well, and even if you do, you can only sell him once in a while. What they needed was a product people could use every day, not just when they didn't feel well. While talking to people at the Whistle Drug Company, he was given a sample of a brushless shaving cream from England. It was gummy and sticky. The drug company salesman said that he thought brushless shaving cream might catch on. Clinton went to chemist Carl Norin, and the two began trying to come up with their own shaving cream. For the two, it wasn't a quick process. In fact, they tried over 300 formulas without finding the right product. 
And then one day, Clinton took some of the Formula 143 that had been aging in a jar and used it. He got a great shave. That was it. Formula 143 properly aged, and they called it Burma Shave. But again, sales were poor. Clinton went from pharmacist to pharmacist trying to get them to carry their new product, but none were taking it. Clinton's son, Alan, came up with an idea. He would walk into a man's office, hand him the jar, and tell him to use it. He would come back in a week, and if the man liked the product, he could pay 50 cents. If not, Alan would take back the unused portion, no questions asked. Unfortunately, this idea didn't help sales. The company seemed to be heading for failure. And then one day, while selling the shaving cream in Illinois, Alan was driving between Aurora and Joliet when he saw a series of signs for a gas station. There would be one sign that said gas, and then a little farther down another would say oil, and then one that said restrooms. The last sign would have an arrow pointing to the service station. Alan thought this might be a way to advertise Burma Shave. When he told his father the idea, Clinton laughed and said it would never work, but Alan was able to convince him to let him try. Clinton gave him $200 for the effort. Alan's son George would later explain, My grandfather gave Dad a couple of hundred bucks to try the sign idea. It was a make-or-break proposition. He was a young guy at the time, just out of college. He had no idea what the response would be. He had no particular experience in making signs and no advertising experience. He just wanted to make a go of the company. He purchased old wooden planks with holes and burn marks on them from the Rose Brothers Wrecking Company, and he painted them using a brush and stencils. The first signs were nothing fancy, nor did they rhyme. They were just sayings like, Save the modern way. Fine for the skin. Druggists have it. Burma shave. The two brothers, Alan and Leonard, drove around the Minneapolis area, finding good spots to post their signs. And they posted 10 to 12 sets of them on two highways. For painting cowshed, barn, or fence, that shaving brush is just immense. Burma Shave. It must have seemed like a huge surprise to the family when they received their first repeat order ever. Yet, at the time, it was thought it might have been too little too late. Dad called us in and said, I believe you've got a great idea here, Leonard said. It's tremendous. The trouble is, we're broke. With a company that was broke, selling a product no one ever heard of, trying an advertising idea no one thought had a chance, Allen would not let the company die. He incorporated the company and sold 49% of the stock in less than a month, giving him the capital to keep going on. Alan and Leonard set up a sign shop, and the two of them traveled around with the signs, purchasing or renting locations, digging holes, and pounding the posts into the ground. And on those signs, they began to incorporate their own sense of humor, creating rhymes to use as a marketing tool. My cheek, says she, feels smooth as satin. Ha ha, says he, that's mine, your patent. Vermishave. Alan's wife, Grace, said that, My husband had a fertile mind and he was able to display it on the highway road signs. I always kept a pencil, paper, and flashlight by the bed. Alan would wake up in the middle of the night and dictate jingles to me. Then he would turn over and go back to sleep. I would be awake for the next hour or so trying to get back to sleep. 
With glamour girls you'll never click, be whiskered like a Bolshevik. Burma shave. The success of the signs were reflected in sales. By the end of the year, sales had jumped from practically zero to $68,000. The next year, sales rose to $135,000, and by 1945, the company was grossing $3 million annually. The early signs were more about selling, like, Are your whiskers, when you wake, tougher than a two-bit steak? Try Burma Shave. The poorest guy in the human race can have a million-dollar face. Burma Shave. The big blue tubes just like Louise. You get a thrill from every squeeze. Burma Shave. She raised Cain when he raised stubble. Guess what smoothed away their trouble? Burma Shave. When World War II broke out, they used their signs for the war effort, with sayings like, Buying defense bonds means money lent, so they don't cost you one red cent. Burma Shave. Let's make Hitler and Hirohito look as sick as old Benito. Buy defense bonds. Burma Shave. By 1960, they even used the signs to promote safe driving. Drove too long, driver snoozing. What happened next is not amusing. Burma shave. Little Bo Peep has lost her Jeep. It struck a truck when she went to sleep. Burma shave. Don't lose your head to gain a minute. You need your head. Your brains are in it. Burma shave. Drinking drivers. Nothing worse. They put the quart before the hearse. Burma shave. And there were environmental messages as well. Ashes to ashes, forest to dust. Keep Wisconsin green or we'll all go bust. Burma shave. But at the heart of it, advertising the product was always the main focus of the sign. She raised cane when he raised stubble. Guess what smoothed away their trouble? Burma shave. The poorest guy in the human race can have a million dollar face. Burma shave. His cheek was rough, his chick vamoosed, and now she won't come home to roost. Burma shave. Does your husband misbehave? Grunt and grumble, rant and rave, shoot the brute some Burma shave. With glamour girls, she'll never click, bewhiskered like a Bolshevik. Burma shave. A funny story happened when they posted one sign that read, Free trip to Mars for 900 empty jars. Apparently, according to Grace, someone actually attempted to get his free trip to Mars. His name was Arliss French, a manager of a supermarket. After seeing the sign, he asked customers to bring in their empty jars so he could collect the 900. Ellen wrote him a joke. He said, If a trip to Mars you earned, remember, friend, there's no return. Grace said, He hired a Brinks truck and came to deliver the jars with spacesuits on. It was fun. We got a lot of publicity out of that. The company gave a trip to him and his wife to Mars, Germany. It's spelled M-O-E-R-S, but it's pronounced Mars. Arliss and his wife were happy for the free trip, and they got to visit Paris while in Europe. The signs appeared in all 48 states of the U.S., with the exception of New Mexico, Arizona, and Nevada, which were deemed to have insufficient road traffic, and Massachusetts, which was eliminated due to the state's high land rentals and roadside foliage. 
Most signs were painted red with white letters, except in South Dakota, which restricted the color red on road signs for official use only, so those were white on blue. When the company ran out of ideas, they had a jingle contest offering $100 for the winning entries. It was a huge success with over 15,000 submissions. By 1950, they had over 700 signs in 45 states. When you lay those few cents down, you've bought the smoothest shave in town. Irma Shave. The 50-cent jar, so large by heck, even the scotch now shaved the neck. Burma Shave. While the company had a huge success with the signs for quite a few decades, several things brought them to an end. The first were laws restricting how close signs could be to the roadside, so with the signs being pushed farther from the road, they had to be made bigger to make them visible. But the main reason was the speed of cars. When the signs first went up, the average speed on the highway was about 35 miles per hour. When cars started traveling 50, 60, 70 miles per hour, these signs became harder to read. At the same time, advertising began to change. Magazines, radio, and television took over, and roadside signs just didn't work so well. In 1932, Burma Vida was sold to the Philip Morris Company, and that put an end to the signs. They removed any that were still standing. A set of signs was donated to the Smithsonian Institute, and many signs were just lost. Leonard O'Dell, who wrote many of the poems, died in 1991 at the age of 83, and his brother, the man who came up with the idea right out of college, Alan G. O'Dell, died in 1994 at the age of 90. On Curves Ahead, remember, Sonny, that rabbit's foot didn't save the bunny. Irma Shave. I'll be honest, I don't think I've ever tasted Necco wafers before. Oh, maybe when I was a child, but not that I remember. I had those little candy hearts called sweethearts, you know, the ones with the cute little sayings on it, like, be mine, kiss me, call me, and miss you. Both those come from the same company, the New England Confectionery Company, or simply Necco. Necco is an interesting company because their products don't seem to change. A roll of Necco wafers today still looks like it could have been produced back in April of 1946. It all started with an invention created by a man named Oliver Chase, an English immigrant and Boston druggist in 1847. Before Chase's invention, to make something as simple as a throat lozenge was a time-consuming process. They had to be made by hand. Chase invented a machine to speed up the process. It was a hand-cranked machine that cut the dough into little wafers, like a printing press for candy. He called them hub wafers. I read somewhere that hub was a slang term for Boston. It didn't take long to figure out the machine was better suited for making candy. Well, actually, candy and throat lozenges were almost the same thing back then. So along with his brothers Silas and Daniel, or maybe just Silas depending on whose history you read, they patented America's first candy machine and started producing sugar wafers. According to the Cambridge Historical Society website, early versions of the candy were distributed to Union soldiers during the Civil War. Though historian Heather Cox Richardson on the Historical Society blog 
tried to find out the source of the story that the wafers were part of the Civil War and couldn't verify the information. Each wafer was, and still is, about the size of a quarter and comes in a roll of about 40. It contains eight flavors, lemon, lime, orange, clove, cinnamon, wintergreen, licorice, and chocolate. They are made from sugar, corn syrup, gelatin, gums, coloring, and flavors. The rolls are wrapped in a glassine paper that resembles stiff wax paper. Not only did these taste good, but they had a long shelf life, unlike many of the candies in the early 20th century. Oh, and one thing about their taste, that actually might depend on the person. Just a quick browsing of the internet seems to show that some people love them, while others classify them as one of the worst candies ever. Personally, I don't have a horse in this race. Now our story jumps ahead about 50 years to 1901, and that's because, well, every version of the story I found did the same thing. By now, I can only assume that Oliver, Cyrus, and Daniel are either dead or too elderly to run the company. By then, it was called Chase & Company, and that's when they merged with two other candy companies. Now, either of these two companies were both from the New England area, or one was from Boston and one was from Pittsburgh. I'm not really sure. It depends whose history you're reading. But that's when Necco, the New England Confectionery Company, was born. It's the oldest candy company in the U.S. that's still in operation. Let's jump back to 1866. That's when Daniel Chase, inspired by the way people send Valentine cards, invented a machine that would allow him to print messages on candy with vegetable dye. Originally, he called these conversation candies. Then, in 1902, they began printing messages of love on little heart-shaped candies, and the Sweethearts candy were born. Did you know that during World War II, the United States government demanded that Necco produce its wafers for the American soldiers overseas? This caused their sales to skyrocket. And in 1930, Admiral Byrd took two tons of Necco wafers to the South Pole. For a while, the company had a manufacturing plant in Chicago, but it burnt down during the Great Chicago Fire. And apparently, there's a tradition of toilet papering somebody's home if they pass out Necco wafers on Halloween. Besides the wafers and candy hearts, the company also makes Mary Jane's, Canadian Mints, Squirrel Nut Zippers, the Clark Bar, the Sky Bar Candy Bar, and others. In 2009, Necco changed the formula of its wafers. They replaced the artificial colors and flavors with natural flavors, and they were softer because of the addition of glycerin. And the green lime ones were removed because they couldn't find a suitable all-natural flavor. Now you'd think going all-natural would be something that the public finds good, but the change actually made a lot of customers angry. The company got letters like, Why did you do this? You've ruined it. Our normal male volume probably went up 20-fold, said Necco Vice President of Research and Quality Jeff Green. Some positive, some negative, but a lot negative. So Necco went back to its original recipe in the summer of 2011. Necco was the first to box quality chocolate-covered peppermints for five cents. And then, of course, there are the famous wafers, which have been popular since before the turn of the century. Some of it is packaged as bars for sale on candy counters everywhere. Others may be found in cellophane bags or neat boxes at your confectioner's, your drugstore, or your market. But wherever you find it, from high-grade penny candies to Necco confections in bulk, there's real satisfaction. 
satisfaction, and confidence in a fine product. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old goal and listen to the sad sack. A little bit before I go, if you're about my age, you know, born around 1961, and you have memories of traveling around with your family as a child, seeing Burma Shave signs, you might be asking yourself, how could they have all been taken down in 1963 if I still remember seeing them? Well, I've looked over the internet, and although history says they were taken down, people still come across them even today. And if you're a young whippersnapper, you may never have heard of Burma Shave. That's okay, you're not alone. I found a letter to Ann Landers on the Chicago Tribune website that went like this. Dear Ann Landers, I'm a 15-year-old girl who lives in Dansbury, Connecticut, and I've been reading your column since I was 11. I understand almost everything you write about, but please tell me, what is Burma Shave? It's not in the dictionary. All I could find is Burma, a country in Southeast Asia. I asked my parents, who are 43 years old, and they've never heard of Burma Shave either. Please explain. And it was signed, Betty, a longtime listener. Well, Betty, I just answered your question right here. Well, I hope you liked today's podcast. And if you didn't, don't worry, I'll probably be back in two weeks with another gruesome murder story. And I'd like to throw a special shout out to all the people who lent me their voice talents for today's show. That's Joe and Diana Jester, my wife Dawn, Brecky Tomlinson, Nancy Fry, and Tom Gerke. Thanks a lot, guys. And I know a few other talents from the Psycon Network wanted to contribute, but I know it was a bad weekend because it was Thanksgiving weekend here in the States. But whatever. And now the ending credits. Did you know that Psycon depends on listeners like you to keep it afloat? They really do. We could really use your help. Think about becoming a patron. If you want to help, just go to Psycon.fm and look for the Patreon link at the top. And a sincere thanks to all of you who already support the show. Speaking of Psycon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other shows? Many of the voices you heard on today's show do podcasts over there. You can find them and others at Psycon.fm. And you know you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. If you want to complain, just say hi, whatever, feel free. I always answer every email. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is coffeewithjeff, all one word, and I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page that you're invited to join. Story ideas are always needed. If you want to support the show but you don't have the coin, then just go over to iTunes and leave a review or a few stars. Those really help the show's popularity. And remember, links to the sources that I used to write today's story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network, to my wife of 33 years for being my wife of 33 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And a special shout out to all those that repost this on Facebook and Twitter. You have a special place in my heart. Be back in two weeks. Bye.
drink his coffee black He once tried it with some cream Didn't like it, now he never looks back Coffee with Jeff Coffee, coffee with Jeff Coffee with Jeff Coffee, coffee with Jeff Met a girl from Beantown Jeff was always hanging around She drank tea, but that was okay She was the dawn of Jeff's new day Coffee with Jeff Coffee, coffee with Jeff Coffee with Jeff Coffee more coffee with Jeff Years go by and life's filled with change Sometimes your plans get rearranged He's seen it all and he's weathered it too So Jeff wants to have some coffee with you Coffee with Jeff Coffee more coffee with Jeff Coffee with Jeff